And welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Hello again. This is Audio Judo, as he said, your podcast of music discovery. Proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source of music podcasts. If this is your first time with us on Audio Judo, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. In addition yeah. to this program, we also produce the podcast Audio Judo Does Jazz. Perfect starting point for someone who is getting interested in jazz. That podcast has one completed season. We'll be coming back with season two this year. What is now this year, 2023. Uh, we also produce Throughline, a podcast devoted to finding the concepts within albums. Throughline just released an episode that included an up-and-coming new band called Karma and the Killjoys, and that interview uh, that interview is wonderful. So uh, I encourage you to check that one out. And if that content isn't enough for you, we have one more way: our Patreon account, Kyle. Yeah, so we've got three tiers for our Patreon account. Uh, the shouted out loud tier is one dollar or euro or pound or quatlu or whatever your local currency is a month. And for that, you can help us keep making the podcast. And in return, we will give you a shout out at the end of every episode of Audio Judo for as long as you're a patron. You want to step it up a little bit and get some of that bonus content that Matthew was just talking about for five bucks a month. You can really help us out by keeping the podcast alive and getting a little extra something for yourself in return. Uh, for that, you get a shout out by name at the end of every episode, two day early access to full episodes, access to the bonus mini episodes called Judo Chops and occasional bonus bits such as unedited interviews, behind the scenes videos and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes generally because we were being jackasses. You really want to help the podcast out and get something pretty good in return for yourself. You can jump up to the backstage past here. For 20 bucks a month, you'll get to help keep the podcast going, score a little extra something for yourself, and get a couple very special things, including the shout out by name, two-day early access to full episodes, access to the Judo Chop mini episodes, uh, bonus bits of uh, jackassery, plus a very special personalized gift after three months at that tier. And the big one, uh, after a year at this tier, you can co-host an episode of Audio Judo of your choice. You get to pick the album, we will co-host with you. Uh, it's uh, we've done two of these now, and they're they're fun. We we've enjoyed them both. You, that can only be activated once, so you can only do it once, unless you really want to pay us a lot of extra money. Uh, which of course, <laughs> hey, we would you know, not uh, for five thousand dollars. <laughs> I would not frown on that. <laughs> right? No, you know? no, no. You already had your chance. <laughs> no, no. I want to pay you five thousand dollars to do a second no. episode. No, we're not taking your money, sir or ma'am. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. Uh, the patron. The patrons do. Uh, excuse me, the patronage really does help us out. Uh, it means that we can keep equipment running, make sure that we're up to date. We can pay for hosting and services and all that kind of stuff to keep the podcast alive. So it really does Indeed. help us out. Indeed. So Matthew, so I'm very, yes, you picked I'm an album this today. week that yeah. is one I'm familiar with several songs off this album. Yes. Never in a million years would have figured you to pick this album. But, really? Uh, I really like it. So uh, go for it. Very excited today. It's our first new episode, new episode of 2023. Uh, and I've decided to do one on my musical heroes, a tragic legend, one of the finest examples of blues rock ever recorded. We were talking about the 1989 album In Step by Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, the last album released before his untimely death in 1990. This was a massive success and in the wake of tremendous personal battles was supposed to be the new beginning for his career he had been longing for over the past several years. This album contains his only number one hit, Crossfire. 
Uh, it would win a Grammy in 1989 for Best Contemporary Blues Album, Go Double Platinum, a huge achievement for a blues record of any type at any time. I loved and still love this record for its immediate accessibility for any music fan to enjoy and for its timeless beauty captured so majestically on the final track of the record, Riviera Paradise, which we will naturally talk about in the track by track. But before we talk about this record, we should talk about the man and the legend, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. You have something right off Yeah, sure. He was born October 3rd, 1954 in Dallas, Texas to Jimmy Lee Vaughan and Martha Jean Vaughan. Uh, they moved around a lot when he was a kid. They lived in Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Oklahoma, which seems like they were clustered right there in that central south part of the U.S. Panhandle area. Yeah. Uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, Stevie's father was an alcoholic who abused his family and friends. He had yeah, a horrible we've seen that temper. Many, many times in these rock giants. Yeah, uh, he had a horrible temper, tons of violent outbursts. Uh, however, for Stevie's seventh birthday, Stevie did get his first guitar, probably from his father and mother, but there's no direct records suggesting that. It was a toy guitar from Sears that had a quote-unquote Western motif. Yeah, as most of us little brothers do, he was influenced and inspired by his older brother, Stevie's brother Jimmy, who will go on to have a very successful career of his own, both solo and with Fabulous Thunderbirds, a career that continues to this very day, uh, Jimmy played the guitar. So naturally he wanted to as well. And Stevie dabbled on uh, drums and sax. Thank God that didn't pan out. <laughs> um, he began to uh, teach himself songs by ear that were on the radio. Uh, in 1963, at the ripe old age of nine, he got his first electric guitar, a Gibson, which was a hand-me-down from Jimmy, as that is typically the case. My first drum set was also a hand-me-down from, not from Jimmy, but from my brother. I was about to say, if you got a hand-me-down drum set from... Jimmy Vaughn. Jimmy Vaughn. I was like, wow, why, do you yeah, still have cool. it? Can we see it? Is it signed? <laughs> but Okay. But uh, yeah, yeah, weirdly enough, only two years later in 1965 and only age 11, he joined his first band, the Chantones, mm -hmm. uh, but left shortly after their first gig, which was at a talent show because he realized the band couldn't perform the entirety of a Jimmy Reed song. So, you know, Bunch of 11-year-olds can't even finish one song. What a bunch of here. losers. Yeah. But this became a bit of a pattern, you know. Yeah. <laughs> His passion for uh, the instrument became full-blown obsession when Jimmy left home at the age of 16. Stevie devoted everything he had to it, much to the dismay of his parents, of course. You heard the you, you read the story about the hamburger job, right? Oh, we f yeah, I felt that sounded gross. The hamburger stand job that sounds a little <laughs> yeah. better. Uh, he took a job at a hamburger stand when he was only like fourteen, washing dishes and emptying trash uh, for seventy cents an hour. And he was because he was miserable. It got him out of the house and earned him a little bit of money. And he was trying to get away, but it just didn't work out. And one night when he was uh, emptying a barrel of grease, he fell into it and got completely covered head to toe in disgusting grill grease and Gross. decided after that he was like, fuck it. Music is my future. If any of us know... The three of us know when they're changing the grease, grease traps at the casino, uh, how fucking bad that smells forever. That's <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but the <laughs> grossest smell, we were leaving a casino one night after work. It was like almost midnight. We're walking out to the parking garage. The grease trap is right next to that. And there was a big truck out there pumping stuff out of the grease trap. And as we got closer, I was like, oh, that's kind of a gross smell. And then the wind shifted. 
I threw up. That smell was so bad. It was like getting hit in the face. You with, threw with up? Like a, just a wall of, of smell. Because I remember a couple and, people, one of those nights almost threw up. Like someone I almost threw up. threw up on my back as we were walking. I think Jess I believe that was. Did. I believe that was Jess. We all ran <laughs> past it because we were all retching. I ended up getting up to the car, starting the car, starting to drive away, and I had to pull over and like vomit out the door. Oh, that's it was awesome. dis- It was disgusting. <laughs> and I, I have nothing but respect for the people that do that as a job because it is one of the grossest jobs that we have to do in a modern society. Yes. And I appreciate it way more knowing that they have to put up with that probably all the time because it just seeps into you. It is a foul so, and offensive odor. Anyways, sorry about the So tangent, in 1970, uh, he joined a uh, band called Liberation, which was a nine-piece band with a full horn section. And in 1970, mid-1970, they performed a show at the Adolphus Hotel in downtown Dallas, which ZZ Top had asked them to perform in personally. During the Liberation set break, ZZ Top invited Stevie Ray to jam with them on a song called Thunderbird. According to people there, they tore that shit down. Yeah. And uh, Stevie was, think 16. was 16. Yeah. 16, right? I wasn't doing anything like that. Not at 16. <laughs> or ever. Uh, in late 1970, he joined the band uh, Cast of Thousands for his first official recording session. Uh, also in the band at that time was future actor Stephen Tobolowski, which yeah. is awesome. He, of course, played Needle Nose Ned, Ned Ryan. Ryerson from Groundhog Day. From Groundhog Day. I have, I have that Ned, exact Ned same note. <laughs> <laughs> Been in countless movies and shows. That's awesome. Um, in 1971, bored by playing pop hits with Liberation, he formed his own band, Blackbird. And around this time, he also got sick of Dallas. So he dropped out of school, moved to Austin, pursue. Why can't I say that word today? Pursue. Pursue, pursue music full time. And they regularly played at a blues club called the Soap Creek Saloon. Opened for well-known bands like Wishbone Ash and Zephyr. Wishbone Ash has an album on my wall right there. It's the one that looks like Darth oh. Vader. But they had too many personnel changes, so he left uh, left them, left Blackbird, and joined a band called Cracker Jack that lasted for a whole three months. <laughs> he's he can't stay still. He's just he's just one of those guys. So in March of '73, joined the band. The Nightcrawlers, who had as their singer the legendary Austin musician Doyle Bramhall, who Vaughn had met years earlier. Following month, they recorded an album in L.A., which was soundly rejected by A&M Records, but contained Stevie's first original recorded compositions. In 1975, he joined the six-piece band Paul Ray and the Cobras that would begin a run at the Soap Creek Saloon that lasted for two and a half years. Wow. Uh, right, that gig eventually uh, became known as Antones. They changed the name from Soap Creek Saloon to Antones. Tones, which would widely become known as Austin's Home of the Blues. They were voted Austin's Band of the Year in 1976 and afforded Vaughn the opportunity to jam with his heroes and legends of the blues, Buddy Guy, Albert King, and Lightning Hopkins. So in 77, of September of 77, he left the Cobras to join a new band again, the Triple Threat Review with W.C. Clark. But in 1978, Clark left the band and Vaughn took over, renamed them Double Trouble, taken from the title of an Otis Rush song. And over the next few years, uh, there would be numerous personnel changes before finally settling on the three. Steve Ray Vaughn on guitars and vocals, Chris Layton on drums, and Tommy Shannon on bass. December 5th, 1979, Steve Ray Vaughn was busted after a gig opening for Muddy Waters for cocaine possession. <gasps> what? Right. Ended up with two years probation and a stipulation to not leave Texas and to enter a drug treatment program. 
he would not do either of those two things. <laughs> that sounds about right. But on July 17th, 1982, Double Trouble played the Montreux Jazz Festival after producer Jerry Wexler had seen them perform. And depending on who you talk to, you will get conflicting stories about what actually happened that night. Yeah. According to Stevie Ray, there was a mix of booze and cheers, but it ended with booze. He walked off stage, handed his guitar to his tech, went to his dressing room with his head in his hands and said, well, when five or six people boo you, it sounds like the whole world. But according to People's James McBride, he said... He seemed to come out of nowhere, a Zorro-type figure in a riverboat gambler's hat, roaring into the 82 Montreux Festival with a 59 Stratocaster at his hip and two flame-throwing sidekicks he called Double Trouble. He had no <laughs> album, no record contract, no name, but he reduced the stage to a pile of smoking cinders, and afterward, everyone wanted to know who he was. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Right? Yeah, I know that at the time, Stevie Ray Vaughan said that he was absolutely devastated by that performance because he yeah. felt like he was kind of a failure. But in retrospect, he went back and said, quote, it wasn't the whole crowd. It was just a few people sitting right up front. The room there was built for acoustic jazz. When five or six people boo, wow, it sounds like the whole world hates you. They thought we were too loud, but shoot, I had four army blankets folded over my amp and the volume level was on two. I'm used to playing on 10. <laughs> uh, so that film of that concert has been released on DVD. And while he still performs like a master, you could definitely hear the booze. You can hear him yeah. hit through the mics. Uh, so I guess the truth is somewhere in between. But either way, it was the second night that changed his life. Double Trouble was booked at the lounge of the Montreux Casino with Jackson Brown in attendance. Brown and the band jammed well into the night, and he offered them the free use of his recording studio in L.A., which they took him up on and recorded 10 songs in two days. How many <laughs> bands have we talked about that Jackson Brown caused, like, willed into existence by being like, yeah, come yeah. out to L.A. and record, or, yeah, you guys sound great, you should put together an album. Like He was kind of the man for a while. Uh, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, because he He's nowhere now, but, yeah. but yeah, he, he was, he was the dude. But while, so while they were in the studio recording these 10 songs in two days, Steve Ray Vaughan gets a call from David Bowie, who he As had you met, do. right? He had met at Montreux and Bowie said, Hey, why don't you come be a part of my next album? Let's dance. He recorded six of the eight songs on the record, including the title track and China Girl. That album would sell three times the amount of records that Bowie's previous album had sold. And the solos on songs like China Girl and Let's Dance are undeniably Stevie Ray Vaughan. I encourage you to go listen to those songs again or you could just listen to China Girl solo right now yeah she said In April uh, 1983, just a month before or a month after being signed to Epic Records, Bowie asked Vaughn to play guitar on the Serious Moonlight tour supporting Let's, Let's Dance. He agreed, but somewhere in the middle of rehearsals and just a few days before the start of the tour, he bailed, saying, it was kind of risky, but I really didn't need all the headaches. <laughs> he just threw away David Bowie like, yeah, yeah. 
nah, I don't need but to do that. To his credit, this was probably Bowie's lowest point, close to anyways, in his like as popularity as, and career. Well, but that album was huge. Oh, him. that album was huge. This was on the, the upswing. The upswing, yeah. But potentially at this point, they didn't know this was a big seller. That's I mean, true. It kind of had started to be, but it wasn't, it hadn't done that upswing where it sold huge yet. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you I, that. In my, it, I think anyways, maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I've got my timing wrong here, but- You're totally wrong. Totally wrong. No. So after he requ- uh, reacquired the tracks that had been laid down at Jackson Brown Studio, they began assembling what would become their first album, 1983's Texas Flood. The album would eventually sell over a half million copies and get to number 38 on the charts, although a lot of those sales were posthumous sales. Um, Rolling Stone had a knob of their own at the time, Mr. Kurt Loder, who ended up being the head of MTV News. He said that Vaughn did not possess a distinctive enough voice. Lord only knows what the hell he was listening to. But on June 16th, he had his coming out party, an album release party at the Tango nightclub with Ted Nugent, Sammy Hagar, The Kinks, and Uriah Heep. What the fuck kind of mix of people is that? And it was huge for him. What the hell's Nugent doing there? What followed was a two-month tour opening for the Moody Blues. Again, not sure about that one either. Yeah. See Ray Vaughan. Well, he plays the blues and they're the Moody Blues. Oh, yeah, it fits then. That's so fine. they can go together. They played a sold-out show at the Beacon Theater in New York and an appearance on Austin City Limits cemented his guitar hero status. In 19, early 84, they began working on their second album, which was to be released in May of that year, 1984's Couldn't Stand the Weather. Driven by a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child, that album would rapidly outpace its predecessor. Peaked at number 31, would remain on the charts for 38 weeks. His voice began to mature, his playing also developed, and they followed that up with the, you know, requisite worldwide tour. The follow-up to that record took a much more measured approach. Uh, Now that they had achieved a measure of success, there wasn't as much urgency to release the next record, and he was uninspired. Lack of inspiration led to complacency, which would invariably lead to more and more alcohol and drug use. Rhodey Byron Barr, I don't know if you saw this, Rhodey Byron Barr said the routine was to go to the studio, do dope, and play ping pong. Yeah. Oh, boy. But at the time, Stevie was finding it very difficult to sing the complex rhythm parts and sing at the same time. So he wanted to add a new sound to the band. Enter keyboardist Reese Winans. He is a legend. And I met him a year or so ago when he was touring with Joe Bonamassa. And they rolled through the theater I work at here in Las Vegas. Yeah. He asked me where Craft Services was. So I took him there. That was pretty cool. He said, hey, where's Craft Services? I'm like, it's downstairs. Here, I'll walk with you. He's a very nice man. Well, that's uh, good. What did yeah. he eat, Matthew? Did you stand there and watch him? I didn't stay and stare. I uh, thought that was just a bit too much. Just um, mouth open? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you like so, cheese. I like cheese, too. I like cheese. You eating cheese? So uh, while they're recording this album, Steve Ray Vaughan was asked to perform the national anthem at the Astrodome on slide guitar, and he, which he did, to rousing booze. <laughs> uh, the Astros publicist said that he was barely lucid, and all he knew was that he wanted Mickey Mantle's autograph who was at the game. The publicist said that no one asked for Stevie's autograph and he was pretty sure that he would be dead by 30. Wow. Yeah, he's not in a good state. On September 30th, 1985, Soul to Soul was released, peaking at number 34, remaining on the charts for about a year. It too would eventually go gold. They toured for about nine and a half months for that tour, eventually releasing a live album called Live Alive to meet some contractual obligations. But it was taking its toll on him and the band. 
Uh, he was exhausted. He was strung out. He was in terrible shape. He had been drinking pretty regularly from the age of six yeah, when he that, used to steal liquor from his dad. That blew my mind when he talks about how he used to take his, take his father's drinks when his father would be totally out of it because he was so drunk. He would take yeah. his father's drinks and drink a bunch of them and then put the cup back. So his dad would wake up and be like, oh, I guess I drank this. And then he'd go make himself another one. And then he'd steal some more of it. And yep. then uh, only you know a few years after that, when his parents would leave him home alone, alone, he would make his own drinks and like fill the bottles back up with a little bit of water so it'd water them down a little bit so they didn't know he had been drinking the alcohol. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nuts, right? At, at his at this same point, they uh he was basically drinking a quart, which is almost a liter for our metric friends, of whiskey every single day and doing seven grams of cocaine a day. Yeah, almost a quarter ounce. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> every day. He had spent years experimenting. He smoked grass, did crank, quaaludes and stuff, but his poisons were liquor and cocaine, and he did a lot of them. And after a performance in Europe in September 1986, he got really sick and ended up checking himself into the London clinic, where the doctor informed him he was about a month away from dying. He returned to the States a week later, entered a couple of different rehab facilities where he was determined to get clean. So after he left rehab in November of 86, he moved back in with his mom in Dallas. You know, he was scared about performing sober, didn't think he would still have the chops, and he hadn't performed sober probably, mostly, ever. Um, but his mom was a great source of positivity for him, and he remained clean and realized that his playing was as good as, as, good as it had ever been. Uh, they continued to tour the live album right on the road, but another roadblock popped up. In January 1987, Va uh, Vaughn filed for divorce from his first wife clearly looking for a completely fresh start. Uh, and because of the divorce proceedings, he was not allowed to write or record, which slowed the development of the follow-up record, the album that we are going to talk about today, In Step. But the band managed to keep writing, crafting the song that would eventually become their breakthrough hit, Crossfire, which we're going to talk about. So, released on June 13th, 1989... In Step marks the last album recorded with Double Trouble, the last album released before his death and his most commercially successful album. As I said, it won a Grammy, had a number one hit, two times platinum, reached number 33 on the charts, and stayed there for about a year as well. The album champions his newfound sobriety, revels in it to some degree, yeah. and finds amazing footing with blues, rock, boogie, honky-tonk, and slow blues. It was his shining moment, and I love this record. Even Robert Christigau could not deny its greatness. He said, it is a very good record, and gave it an A-. Apparently, his super verbose reviews are left for albums that he thinks are shit, <laughs> and all Steve Ray Vaughan gets is, it is a very good record. A-. A-. But you know what? I'll take it. So the title of the album reflects his new approach, in step with life, in yeah. step with himself, and in step with his music. It also probably refers to a 12-step program yeah, that's that Alcoholics the theory. Anonymous use. Yes. Uh, I had no idea. I knew Alcoholics Anonymous in researching this. I was like, you know, I've never really looked at what those 12 steps are. I had no idea how many of them are very religious-y. It was a religious organization to begin with. Yeah. I, yeah. I kind of knew they were, I knew one was you have to accept a higher power and stuff like that. But uh, I had no idea exactly how super religious they were. Yeah. It started uh, that way. Then it branched off and the original version is now what is considered uh, Celebrate Recovery, which is yeah. uh, the same similar program still 
in churches. But uh, I do think we should probably mention really quick, if you are struggling with this type of thing, AA is, yeah. a, is an option. There's also, if you're looking for something less religiously, uh, there's a place called Smart Recovery, uh, Women for Sobriety, SOS, the Secular Organizations for Sobriety, Life Ring Secular Recovery, or Moderation Management. Yes, thank you for doing so, that. Yeah, there are some the options out there. Every time we talk about this, I think about it, it's like, man. Well, it's so prevalent. I mean, yeah. it's nuts. So my brother and I are very different drummers. Uh, hmm. While I gravitated to jazz and rock, he was more into harder rock and blues. Uh, he joined, this would be about 1987, eight, so it was probably about 15. Uh, he joined a band called Blues, a uh, blues band called Big Town that used to play all over the Metro Detroit area. And they were very, very good. Uh, it was during this stint with that band that I really got exposed to the beauty of the blues because during the summer, during the summers, my parents were uh, up at our house in northern Michigan and he and I spent a lot of time together. I used to go to some of his gigs and practices and I would hear stuff like Albert King and Buddy Guy and the Paladins. Um, but when I really got into Stevie, it was a whole different thing. There was something about his playing that kind of took you away and consumed you. The one and only time I saw him live was at the Pine Knob Amphitheater in the summer of 89 on this tour, the in-step tour with my brother. And the fabulous Thunderbirds warmed up for them, naturally. You know, it's his brother. Uh, and they were fine. But the second Stevie took the stage, it was like... It's so weird because I did that in a you know a mock voice about the, the the cinders left from the stage. It was like a stage burning down. It was electric. <laughs> the way he moved, the way his fingers danced across the frets, that huge hat with the raccoon pelt hanging from it. It was a whole vibe, and it was just you're you're totally enraptured by the whole experience. And you know the band's not doing much except pounding out what they're supposed to be pounding out. They're not, but it was it was incredible. Like those shows, you're like holy shit. Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And yeah, you are. And I so loved being around for this time. So what do you think the chances are right now that I could turn on a pop music station, not satellite, or even a terrestrial rock station and hear Joe Bonamassa once in a week? Probably. I'm saying none. Yeah. None. Say probably zero. Maybe right, once back, a month. But, but back at this time, they played this on the radio. You were exposed to it. You could hear the blues on the radio and connect with it. The death of terrestrial radio and the overwhelming glut of partitioned choices has made the music experience terrible for everyone. That's my feeling. You could spend your whole day listening to a channel that only plays pop or only plays 90s music or whatever, and there's no balance and it sucks. And that's what that more than anything is what frustrates me is that you can silo up and say, I'm only going to listen to this. And if you're one of those people that are like, I don't listen to radio anyway, you can do that. You know, you play, just play your own CDs in the car and only listen to that. But the fact that nobody's given the choice anymore or no one's just no one's exposed to it and just saying, hey, the DJ feels like this is an important piece of music to listen to. And we're going to put it on. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, well, then don't call in and tell us you like it and it'll die a quick death. But that, that option's gone. The DJ has been replaced with an artificial intelligence that selects the mathematically appropriate songs for the time of day and <laughs> current number of people on the road. Yeah, that blows. Uh, yeah, it does. You get album artwork? Would you like to talk about the artwork? Yeah, let's talk about the cover. It's really simple. It's just a picture, uh, picture of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan in a poncho and a, his big hat uh, with his head down. You can't really even tell that it's him. Uh, mm -hmm. He's playing an acoustic guitar uh, in the top right corner. It has the Steve, SRV Stevie Ray Vaughan logo. Uh, it says Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. And in the top left, it says In Step in like a handwritten script. Uh, the graphics design was by David Coleman. Uh, David was 
was a senior designer for Sony from 1988 to 2005. He still works for Sony uh, to this day. He also owns his own design company, so it makes sense that he would be one of the designers at this time. He's actually credited on hundreds of albums because Sony did all this stuff in-house. They would just say, oh, you're making an album with Sony? Here's our designer. So he has hundreds of credits for design work. The art direction is by Nancy Donald, another person with tons of music albums. She worked for Sony at the time. Don't remember where she works now, but uh, she's still the art around. Art director I believe. for Michael Jackson's Bad. Yeah, and photography by Alan Messer, who I think I feel like we've talked about before, but I couldn't find his name in any of my notes. Yeah, he's, uh, I can't remember which albums he's done. Yeah, but yes, a, we have talked about. He him. won a Grammy for album design. He, he's photographed basically every famous musician from the early '70s at some point or another. So it's again, it's a very simple cover design, but very effective, you know immediately what this album is like. Yeah, his face is is covered. It's yeah. almost like a monk. He's almost like in a in a prayerful type pose, kind of bending down. Yeah. It's uh it's interesting. I do like the cover. Uh you want to take a quick break and then come back and do it track by track? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. The house is rocking, Kyle. Indeed it is. If you needed a reason to doubt the impact that Reese Winans had on the sound of Double Trouble and the legacy of Stevie Ray Vaughan, do not listen to this song. <laughs> it is a butt-shaking, honky-tonk soap opener. Its only problem is that it's only two and a half minutes long. Yeah, it's a I very short song. I know. I will occasionally hear this song on an 80s satellite radio channel, and it makes you want to get up. It's Not only is the guitar solo stellar, the piano solos are are so good it makes you want to party and you shouldn't bother knocking you just come on in and it sounds like this
Go ahead. I would say a lot of people speculated that the title comes from the uh, the saying slash bumper sticker from the 60s and 70s. If this van's a rockin', don't come a knockin'. I would say that's pretty accurate. Makes a lot yeah. of sense. However, yeah. that might imply that since the if the house is a rockin', don't bother knocking. Come right inside to the orgy that's going on inside. <laughs> so it no, might be a no. fuck song. It no. might be a fuck song. No, I think it's later. Oh, you think it's after the orgy? No, I think. <laughs> no, I think the fuck song's later on this record. Oh, okay. Oh, there, there could be more than one. Oh, they there could, could be more than that's one. allowed. There's more than one. I think you're. It's fair. Okay. someday we're gonna find a fuck album where the whole album Whoa. is just every song. Just you, yeah, no way around it. That's weird. I'll find it someday. <laughs> so this song was uh, co-written by Doyle Bramhall, who had become Vaughn's co-writer over the previous couple of years. Bramhall released a solo record in '94, worked with some other great artists over the years, uh, but was kind of broken after the loss of. Stevie Ray. He's also the father of Doyle Bramhall Jr., that makes sense, who achieved much more significant success with Eric Clapton and Roger Waters. Doyle Sr. passed away in his sleep in 2011 at the age of 62. So that's Ed. I would say this and the next song are probably the two Stevie Ray Vaughan songs that I'm most familiar with because they actually got a ton okay. of airplay on the classic rock station where I grew up uh, a couple of times a day for both of them. So some DJ really liked that. That makes songs. sense. Uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So Crossfire is the yeah. next song. As we've mentioned a few times, this was Stevie Ray's only number one hit. It was not written by him, but the songwriting duo of Bill Carter and Ruth Ellsworth couple was jamming together with the rest of Double Trouble while Stevie was restricted from participating due to his divorce. And they came up with this tune and threw some lyrics on it. And whammo, the song goes to number one, ends up winning Song of the Year in the Austin City Music Awards and receives an award for being played over a million times on the radio. Wow. That's a lot. Uh, in addition to that, one of the bands that I was in during high school, Legend of Rupert, performed this song for many a high school dance. <laughs> this was fun. I love this song. So the horns are provided by the Texacali horns, which consisted of Joe Sublet on saxophone and Daryl Leonard on trumpet. The Sublet has performed and recorded with many bands, including Taj Mahal, the Blues Brothers, and the Phantom Blues Band. Leonard is equally accomplished playing with Taj Mahal and also recording with Buddy Guy Keb Moe and the Rolling Stones. Crossfire sounds like this. just the right kind of tempo to get into the groove. It's not too rushed. Uh, but at the very end of the song, the drummer picks up the tempo ever so slightly, like five BPM. <laughs> it's noticeable, but it changes the whole quality of the song. It's just it's just a very interesting change. It just pushes it just a touch. Uh, the song is credited to the entire Double Trouble band and Bill Carter and Ruth Ellsworth since they were all yeah. present on the jam. I say Reese Winans' piano and organ on this really stand out to me. It really helps draw the song along. Uh, and if you're not familiar with 
Reese. He's probably best known for his work with uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, but he was also in a prog rock super-ish group called Captain Beyond, which uh, <laughs> Captain Beyond uh, is kind of a forgotten about band from the 70s. They had three albums, uh, which are all actually pretty good. The first one, the self-titled one, Captain Beyond, is worth a listen and might have an episode in it in the future, mostly because Ooh. the background for the band is bonkers. <laughs> Is it bonkers? Well, it was all these different, uh, all these different musicians from. I'm drawing a blank now. But Deep Purple and other super famous bands got together to do Captain Beyond, and then after they started to make, after they started to be successful, their former bandmates started to sue them and be like, "Well, wait a minute, you took that idea from me. I get money for that. Oh, you, you took that oh. kind of the these these lyrics were something we talked about, so I get a piece of that." And they basically got sued out of existence. <laughs> They also had a, they could have been on our rotating rosters episode because they have this list of 30-ish people who were in or out of the band for like, you're uh, you're on two tour dates, so you're in the band and then uh, we're done with you, we don't want you in the band anymore. Oh, you're in in for like recording half an album. Uh, Get the hell out of here. We don't like your sound, but you're still going to be on the album. (laughs) It's it's a huge fucking mess, but they're great. Uh, Definitely go check out Captain Beyond. They say get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. Also a surprise. No, we definitely need to do that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, uh, Surprise, another great uh, guitar solo from Stevie Ray Vaughan here. Basically, every song on this album has a wonderful guitar solo buried in it. It's true. You're going to hear several but of they're them. They're great. They are all great. The engineer on this song was Richard Mullins. Ah. And as far as I know, Randy, there is no association with Peter Gabriel. So, uh, uh, Tightrope. Tightrope. Another song uh, co-written by Bram Hall and Vaughn. Uh, Vaughn. Uh, this is really where the album starts to take on the personality of Vaughn from a lyrical perspective. The first two songs were A, a get up and dance opener, and B, a song not written by him. Uh, while they both sound like Steve Ray Vaughn, the lyrics aren't reflective of of what he had been through, uh, but that changes on this song. The the first two verses deal very honestly with how he was feeling during those years of drug abuse. First half line of each verse, caught up in a whirlwind, knee deep in hot water, afraid of my own shadow, heart full of darkness. It's all very clear that he was aware of where he was during the abuse and how much damage he was doing to himself and his relationships. But once you are in the cycle, it is very difficult, as any recovering addict will tell you, it's very difficult to get out of that cycle. You know, the tightrope is just that, that metaphorical point where you can keep trying to balance your life on this thin wire and risk falling off for good, or you could try to make it to the other side where things won't necessarily be easier, but they might be better. Uh, For many years after I had stopped uh, using, this was my personal growth anthem. Uh, I used to listen to it on those days that I wasn't quite sure what direction I was headed. And it's a good reminder, you know, the, the second two verses of the song have him achieving that growth. And one of the best lines of the whole record is, through eyes of love I see, I've been looking at a friend. Meaning he's starting to recognize himself as worth it to stay sober because he had a lot more left to say. And uh, Tightrope sounds like this. So yeah. good. He listened to him solo forever. <laughs> 
uh chris layton get a little bit of a workout on this song and on this whole album here just great yeah. tight drumming on here uh he's a texas native oh he's so and, good uh he was born and raised yeah. in corpus christi he moved to austin in 1975 and joined a band called greasy wheels uh where he met stevie yeah, ray vaughn and then later joined wheels. up with double trouble obviously uh it's like you said this is kind of the first two songs on this album a little bit more rocky a little bit more not quite stevie ray vaughn ish this is where it starts to right. fall into place that this is a stevie ray vaughn album and it gets a little bit more bluesy and a little more that feeling i don't quite know how to describe it no you're yeah you're right there the the personality of the record starts to change a little yeah. bit let me love you oh, baby well buy me a drink first oh see where okay. this goes oh that's the song uh, oh, sorry. yeah yeah it's a classic stevie ray vaughn blues romp and another short one clocking it at just two and a half minutes uh and it's a cover it's a cover of a willie dixon tune willie dixon is perhaps one of the most prolific songwriters ever yeah but he more than anyone except muddy waters was responsible for the chicago blues sound uh that we all love he wrote or co-wrote over 500 songs songs that have been adapted by rock bands songs like hoochie coochie man i can't quit you and spoonful by cream to name a few, he's received a Grammy Award, been inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Blues Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So I would say there's a pedigree there. Yeah. You know? This song was originally written by Willie Dixon in 1961, but uh, Vaughn takes it, makes it a little more fun, a little more danceable. Take a listen. Tinkly honky tonk piano really sets this one aside oh, right? from everything else on the album. It definitely makes it like a completely unique song. And it also pulls that blues, the Chicago blues sound out even more. But I totally agree with you that Stevie Ray Vaughan took it and made it something unique. It pays homage to the the past, but it's something unique and homage. Homage. Omelet du homage. <laughs> Uh, homage a homage omelet so <laughs> so one of the things that stevie ray does on his guitar that you start to pick up if you keep listening especially in this song even though i put no examples of it at all <laughs> is his little slide up the neck right before a guitar phrase he does it all over this record and especially in this song it's kind of like a little calling card and i'm sure it's kind of with how difficult some of these rhythms are while he's singing, it's a way to determine where he is on the neck of his guitar a little bit. That slide, because he can could, he could feel the frets as he goes by. I think it's like a good geolocator, like, like just kind of knows where he's starting off. He does it all over this record, and I love that sound so much. I wish I would have put that on that song. That's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> what an ass. It's okay. I do that all the time. I pick a clip. I pick a clip, and I'm like, "Oh, this sounds great." And then I throw it in there, and then I go back and look at my notes, and I'm like, "Here's a clip of this exact thing from the song." And I'm like, "Oh shit, I didn't put that in." Yeah, there. I didn't even put that in there. Oops. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Uh, you got more on that one? No, no. I, I, that's about all I got. That's but it. you could leave my girl well, alone. Leave my girl alone. At the same time. <laughs> uh... 
This is really the first true slow blues jam on the record. It's another cover, this time the work of the one and only king of Chicago blues, Buddy Guy. Buddy Guy is only called an influence by Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Keith Richards, Jeff Beck, Gary Clark, John Mayer, Joe Bonamassa, and of course, Stevie Ray So a bunch of unknowns. Yeah, he's garbage. Uh, He's won eight Grammy Awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award. He's won a National Arts Medal, a Kennedy Center Award, was voted number 23 on the Rolling Stone list of greatest guitarists ever. Far, far, far too low, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And at the age of 86, he still performs almost 120 shows per year. What? Yeah. Many of them at his bar in Chicago. Yeah. 120 shows a year at age 86. So when are we going to Chicago? That's a, I know that's, that's working. My brother's seen him at his bar in Chicago. It's, it's, it's like a pilgrimage, I think for most <laughs> blues fans. I think you have to it's like going to Mecca. You have to like, I gotta go. <laughs> no, this song, Leave My Girl Alone was actually written by Buddy Guy in 1967. And Stevie Ray, ever the blues purist, gives this song all of the reverence that it deserves with a beautifully crafted solo that is everything you want it to be. And here it is right here. dirty. It's so dirty. And it goes on for another minute after that, too. It's just awesome. And, you know, there's not much more to say about it because the lyrics are standard. Jealous boyfriend telling the new new dude to butt out. But it doesn't matter one lick what he's singing about because it's all about the music. This is the kind of tune that the blues is all about. 12 bar blues with interspersed guitar solo and B3 solos. It's one of my favorite songs in the record. Uh, And it's also the closer of the first side of the album. It's it's definitely it's a slow, sad song. But I think that with the lyrics, and with the the music coming together, it is exactly what most people think of when they hear the term the blues. This song could yeah, you it's could, just a that's just a blues. You could song, take this man. and be like, this is the dictionary de- definition of the blues. Listen to this song. Like it's very yep. good though. I love it. I love that song. Travis Walk. An instrumental written the by opener uh, side two. Stevie Ray Vaughan, like you said, yeah. the opener of side two. It has this uh, su- super intricate guitar rhythm yeah. that makes sense as to why he didn't add lyrics to it. Uh, can you imagine having to play and sing that part at the same Ugh. time? That's crazy. And this is just another short song. It's just a little over two minutes. The bass line follows pretty close to the rhythm part, and that in it of itself is a pretty big achievement. The bass is played on this song by longtime Double Trouble member Tommy Shannon. This guy's been around a bit. He played at Woodstock with Johnny Winter. Are you kidding me? <laughs> he's been, what? He's a Woodstock and he's playing with Steve Ray Vaughan in his band. That's just, to me, that's just weird. He, along with the rest of Double Trouble, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015. And here's a little bit of Travis Walk.
That's just too good. I love that song. But then, Wall of Denial. And this song gets a lot of attack and disdain from people because they feel it is almost overtly about AA and recovery. The album is called In Step After All. People speculate, as you mentioned, that this is a direct reference to the 12-step program associated with AA. Vaughn has had said no, and I can't really argue with him, but this song is most definitely about coming to terms with what you used to be and who you are now. Lyrics like, we've all had our demons from the Garden of White Lies, dress them, amuse them, pulling wool over our eyes, go so far as to love them, to keep them from letting go, all the while they were killing us, but we couldn't let it show. I mean, call it whatever you want, but it is surely about recovery. And why shouldn't he write about that? He had been through a ton and made it to the other side, and we write about what we know. And I think he was feeling great about life at this point, and why shouldn't he celebrate what he endured? And on the music side, it really has my favorite riff on the whole record. That opening bit and the strumming shuffle he uses is so great. Uh, It's not my favorite song on the record, but for sure my favorite riff. And that riff sounds like this. I feel like this song really should have been on some super cheesy cop show back in the late 80s <laughs> or maybe like a maybe a shitty movie starring Tom Barry. I could definitely see both of those. But I couldn't find any. Yeah, I couldn't find anything. I feel like that's a missed opportunity. The film could have been called Wall of Denial. It's a good song. Ooh, starring Willem Ooh. Dafoe. Oh, yeah. we just stepped it up a notch. <laughs> uh, scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff. So, you know, hmm. scratch and sniff. You know what this is, Kyle? This is the fuck song. This is the fuck so Scratch and sniff, <laughs> for anybody who's not familiar, usually refers to stickers that have been treated with a special coating developed by Gail W. Matson accidentally while working on something else at 3M back in the 1960s. And then they took that technology and put it on these little stickers. So it's like, it's a cherry. And you scratch it and it smells like a cherry. It's a lemon. And you scratch it, it smells like a lemon. It's a butthole and you scratch Kyle, it and I it have, smells like- I still have some. Oh, cool. I still have a page of scratch and sniff stickers from, from the 80s. When I, uh, when I, that, uh, yeah, I got popcorn and bubble gum. And, when I typed yeah, scratch good. and sniff into Google to try to find some information about where they actually came from, you can still buy them too. They're all over Amazon. Oh, I There's bet. thousands of them now. However, here, uh, I think it's referring to uh, uh, fucking. Yeah. Which, oh, I was going to say, which can be both uh, scratchy and smelly. <laughs> it's also the true love song. And that's the sweetest thing of all. This song is so much fun. And it's totally about finding the perfect person for you and not trying to change them, not trying to own or control them, but just letting them be them and loving them for who they are. It's sweet. The lyrics made some plans to make it forever. Now, several years have gone. They're still getting along. They know what true love is made of. They know that life's a trip with all its bumps and dips. They're going to help one another along. How awesome yeah. is that? All right, And remember that this is just after his divorce finalized. He has cleaned up his act. And oh, what's this? He was also dating a New Zealand model, Jana Lapidus, who had been with him for the last couple of years and had assisted with his sobriety. So could this be who this song is about? Very well could be. I think it is. Scratch and Sniff sounds like this. They were too long and- 
love this song for the music, the lyrics, for the sentiment. It's got all the hallmarks of a great Steve Ray Vaughan blues rocker. And it's just a little more fun. You got more on that? uh, I think you covered pretty much everything I got. Damn you. (laughs) Love Me Darling. Oh, again? Oh, that's the next song. Yeah, twice. It's another cover. Written by Howlin' Wolf a.k.a. Chester Arthur Burnett, uh, who's one of the most influential blues musicians of all time. His list of accomplishments was amazing. Delta Blues, Chicago Blues, known for Smokestack Lightning. Uh, Also known for being a rarity among blues or any musicians. He was never a drug user. He was married to his wife for 30 plus years. He was also absolutely financially stable (laughs) when almost all musicians were none of those things. He was disciplined with his money, so much so that he used to offer his backing musicians health plans when they played for him as part of their compensation. How cool is that? (laughs) This guy was totally like solid. Like, oh, by the way, I'm playing Delta Blues about how my life is so shitty. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get to this 401k started are you are you, you on the uh, are you on the ppe plan or the uh the hmo plan or what are you doing uh, but stevie ray does what he does with it it makes it sound fantastic uh, and here's a piece Cali horns in the background there. So good. They have their own album. I don't know if you found that. Uh, it was released in 2003. No, it's just called Tex Cali Horns. It's a very mariachi heavy album, but it's uh, very good. Yeah. Really? So you said earlier you you were surprised that I picked this record. Yeah. You never really said why you were surprised. I just did not picture you as like a Stevie Ray Vaughan guy, to be honest with you. And I, I especially when you started telling That's me weird. like, oh yeah, this is actually a really important album, and this is like you know something that actually has some meaning yeah. to me and it just didn't it's not something i don't think we've ever talked about stevie ray vaughn before except maybe in just passing as he's come up in other show notes and things and i don't think you've ever Probably. been like oh yeah this is a really important album and it was very influential for me and Weird. yeah unless unless yeah, i've totally just, just been ignoring you for years but well i do you, that you sometimes. usually do what? what 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 uh so the last track riviera paradise Like a true magician, he saves his best for last. The final song on the record is the other instrumental and the only other song completely written by Stevie Ray Vaughan. And it is a tour de force of blues, jazz, rock stylings. It is without a doubt my favorite song on the record and probably my favorite of his entire catalog. It is emotive and is also almost nine minutes long. And it sounds like this.
It's unreal. And when you take a second to think about it, this was the very last song you would have listened to during his lifetime. And it's his crowning moment. Uh, Every bit of him can be heard on here. And according to the stories, he had recorded material for the record all day. And then towards the evening, he asked the engineer to leave the tape running, lowered the lights in the studio, and just sat and played this. Uh, Reese Winans would come in later and add some organ, and the rest of the band would come in. But this is Stevie Ray Vaughan in the most vulnerable way you could possibly imagine, just pouring his heart out through the guitar. And for the people that don't know about Stevie Ray Vaughan and how he died, it truly is a tragically sad story. Stevie Ray Vaughan had come all this way. He had fought his chemical demons, got out of an unhappy marriage, and he was truly healthy and vibrant and only headed for bigger and better things. And early in the morning in August of 1990, Stevie Ray Vaughan in Double Trouble had just finished an all-star jam concert at the Alpine Village Amphitheater in East Troy, Wisconsin. They had warmed up for Eric Clapton that night and afterwards headed to a field on a golf course where three helicopters waited to take them to Midway Airport in Chicago. The weather was not great. Uh, There were only enough seats on the first set of helicopters for Stevie's brother and his wife and agent and manager. Stevie asked Jimmy, his brother, if he could take this one seat and they could take the next because he really needed to get back. And they obliged. And Stevie Ray never made it. At 12.50 in the morning, the helicopter took off in a dense fog, crashed into the side of a ski slope less than a mile from where it took off. Uh, All aboard were killed instantly. No fire or explosion occurred, and because the fog was so bad, no one knew there had even been a crash at all until it didn't arrive at its destination a couple hours later. It's terrible. And again, you wonder what could have been had he lived. What magic would we have heard from him? Where would he have taken the blues guitar? Maybe with his influence, the blues wouldn't have faded in popular music like it has. We really won't ever know. But we will always have In Step to listen to, which is truly his masterpiece and a wonderful, wonderful album. Let's be real here. The Stevie Ray Vaughan baby metal crossover album would have been amazing. (laughs) Just phenomenal. Heck yeah. Mind blowing. Oh, when he recorded uh, with Limp Biscuit, oh. <laughs> Just wonderful. Oof. Oh, the things. The things. But uh, that's in step. Yeah. You know, let us know what you think about this record or any of any other record that we talk about at our socials. You could get hold of us at facebook.com forward slash audio judo, Twitter at audio judo, Instagram at audio underscore judo, or uh, as Kyle may have mentioned on the last episode, he's working his way towards some other social media platforms, but that is coming. Do we have some Patreon? We do. Out? Uh, our shout it out loud tier, Simon C, our UK consultant. Thank you so much. Uh, front row seats tier, Michael A and Darlene W. Uh, backstage pass tier, Scott K, Michael S, Kristen K, David W, and Christian S. So thank you all so much for your support. It really does help keep the podcast going. Uh, yeah, we have episodes coming out about Frank Sinatra, My Chemical Romance, Christopher Cross, and somewhere in there, our 100th episode. Uh, we hope you stick around. It's going to be a fun 2023. We can't wait. Until then, uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Everyone. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.